showing you how to reignite the embers of a distant and lonely relationship into a blazing, emotionally intimate connection. I'm your host, Amber Dawson. I'm a psychologist, author, and speaker. A few of my favorite things are my husband, Graves, and my adorable little dog, Riggs. Now let's learn how to create a soul crush in love that lasts. Hit subscribe in your podcast app so that simply by listening, you can rekindle your relationship by pouring a little gas on your relationship ember. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be misconstrued for specific relationship advice. For advice for your specific relationship, seek a local couples therapist for relationship counseling for couples therapy. Welcome back to Relationships Like the Podcast. And today I have someone with us that when I am encountering someone with a mental health difficulty or I'm seeing a couple and there's a mental health condition that I don't know a lot about. This is someone I personally go to for help very often um, who educates me all the time. It's amazing we're in the same profession. And sometimes I'm like, wow, there's so many things I don't know, but it's because we get our expertise in in different areas. And so I'm just delighted to have her on the show to teach us uh, about her areas of knowledge and to glean us some insight about mental health across the lifespan, because certainly we all age. And if you're in a relationship, um, you will not stay the same age forever, unless you get a special potion or something, in which case I want to know about that. So let me introduce to you my colleague, someone I professionally consult with and just think the world of. Her name is Dr. Julie Erickson. So she is a clinical psychologist at Forest Hill Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. She's an adjunct adjunct faculty member at the Department of Applied Psychology and Human Development at the University of Toronto. Her research is focused on understanding mental health needs of older adults and reducing their barriers to obtaining evidence-based psychological treatment. Dr. Erickson provides cognitive behavioral therapy to adults across the lifespan with a focus on mood and anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, and trauma-related disorders. She also teaches graduate courses and workshops on cognitive behavioral therapy, psychological disorders, and aging and mental health. So, whew. She teaches people all the time. She's practicing a lot and we're going to learn so much from her today. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Julie Erickson. Thanks, Amber. I'm happy to be here and excited to be chatting with you today. I'm so excited too, actually. So the very first question I have for you is what on earth made you decide that you wanted to work in a mental health field? Yeah, it's a good question. It's one I get uh, actually pretty commonly, but the answer that I usually give people is uh, my first job. My first job as a teenager was in a nursing home and uh, which is, you know, not the most common first job to have when you're a teenager. Um, but it's funny, I worked in the recreation department of a nursing home. And I got to know a lot of older adults uh, in the nursing home and started to really uh, get curious about like some older adults in the nursing home were faring super well, pretty happy people versus some people were uh, pretty depressed, uh, pretty withdrawn um, and not really doing too much, um, you know, in their day to day lives. And I start to really wonder, like, what's the difference between these two people? Right. Like wh- what? contributes to people doing well in late life and kind of still thriving versus what makes people really struggle and and suffer. And uh, so I really thought like, I want to study this. I want to learn more about this. And, and ideally if I can help and, and know how to help people age better um, that would be 
great. So, so that ultimately kind of led me to, to clinical psychology. Um, and then things have kind of evolved from there as far as my clinical practice and areas of expertise. Um, and yeah, I think that that's it in a nutshell. Wow. I feel I had no idea actually about that story in your life. And I feel like, wow, I, I could totally see how that would lead to an interest. I was, as you're talking about this, I don't often think about this anymore, but my two grandmas were in the same nursing home for a while and they had very different experiences. My one grandma like moves into the nursing home and gets a boyfriend and is like a socialite, you know, like she's, she's out doing things with people and like, cool. And then my other grandma, like sometimes it was a struggle to get her out of her room and to get her to have a shower and she didn't want to. And they lived across the hall from each other in this nursing home, but they had very vastly different experiences. And even as you're saying this, I felt like a tear come to my eyes. I'm thinking, wow, what was going on for them as they had such vastly different experiences. And, you know, I think they struggled in different ways going in there. And, and there's this part of me that's like, why didn't I think about what was going on with them? But I didn't. And, you know, it is what it is. But I was like, wow, of course, if you're working in that environment, you'd become interested in, in what differentiated these experiences. So yeah, it's pretty fascinating when you think about it, right? It's so super fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess take us to a little bit about, so we've gone into like why care, you see these different areas, but tell mm-hmm. us why, you know, we're younger people. Um, a lot of the people I end up seeing in my practice, I think are you know, they probably look at a picture of me and they see my age. I'm similar to their age. So most of the people I work with are, I'm guessing within 10 years of me, but I also get people that are much, much older than me. Um, and I know that you in particular have a client population that is much older than us. So, uh, tell us a little bit about why should we care about our mental health across the lifespan? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it's often a, a neglected or like understudied or um, it, it's certainly not an area that that gets as much airtime as say mental health in young adulthood, for example. Um, so I think why care? Well, I mean, if, if we're lucky, all of us will get the chance to grow old, right? So it really is a privilege that hopefully all of us, you know, can look forward to. Um, and, and why else? Well, I mean, a lot of what we do now really is going to lay the groundwork for how we age and what our experience in late life is going to be, right? So establishing good habits and good lifestyle choices now is really going to set us up for, um, you know, a long, you know, happy and and fruitful life. Um, and maybe finally, why care is, is maybe just more at a societal level. Um, adults over the age of 60 are the fastest growing demographic globally. Right. So this population, this age group is poised to uh, comprise about a quarter of the world's population within the next uh, 30 years. So it's a huge portion of our population demographic and will continue to be so, um, you know, for for the rest of our lives. All right. So we do need to familiarize ourselves with the needs of this population um, so we can better address them. Yeah. And like great points about a number of things there. And just even hearing that information, although it's not shocking, I felt shocked in in Mm -hmm. that moment. Like, wow, you're right. I should be thinking about that. Even as my parents are entering that demographic, what's going to happen to them next and wow, all of their friends. And then just thinking, I'm like thinking about baby boomers and like all the people that are now aging, uh, they're going, wow, what, what will that mean for our country, for our society, for the political realm? Um, and how will we take care of 
take care of our, our peoples, you know, and it's yes. an interesting thought and question to figure out how do we do that in a way that is like humane and helpful and evidence-based, not just like winging it. And, uh, all right. So the other thing I thought you said that was really interesting was about laying the groundwork. And I was thinking about facial aging all of a sudden, and I was thinking to just like really silly example, but I'm starting to notice at this part in my life, what I did in my younger life, which was I had like kind of brownish, uh, tans very easily turns brown skin. And I was like, I don't burn. I don't need sunscreen ever. And I would be like, I don't need it. Cause my skin just turns brown in the sun. I don't need it. I don't turn red. And all of a sudden I'm noticing like, geez, there's these lines and wrinkles, I didn't ever take care of my skin when I was younger. Perhaps now this is catching up with me. And it was this innocent thing. And we think we have all this time until it catches up with you. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me a little bit about what sorts of things at this phase in our life, knowing that we will age, mm -hmm. should we be paying attention to? Yes. Yeah. No, it's, it's a really good question. Um, so kind of how do we lay the groundwork for, you know, good mental health in late life? Um, and I mean, a good chunk of the research in this area kind of is focused on physical health, right? So doing what you can now to reduce your risk factors for poor quality of life in your later years, right? So some of the big things around like smoking and alcohol use and obesity, right? The things that we know raise our risk factors for things like hypertension and heart disease and diabetes, right? Liver and kidney issues, right? All the things that tend to really um, take away from quality of life in our, in our later years. So doing what you can now to reduce your risk factors uh, from a physical health perspective is probably one of the most important things that you can do. Um, the probably second or, or maybe up there in terms of one of the most important things you can do to kind of set yourself up for, you know, better later years of your life is really taking a close look at your social capital, right? Uh, your community. Um, who is around you um, to help support you and, and, and provide that help or support when you need it. Um, now, interestingly enough, loneliness is, is actually considered a, a strong risk factor for mortality. So um, tons of studies demonstrating a link between prolonged loneliness um, and heightened risk of death. Right. So all the more reason to be looking now at, OK, who's around me? Who do I trust and rely on? Um, and making sure that throughout your life, you have a good community of people, um, whether you're married or you're single um, or otherwise. Um, but social capital community is is really important um, to age well. And it doesn't shock me that that social capital is so important, because even at non-later life, younger life, teenagers, midlife, when we don't have people in our lives that are supporting us, we yes. feel lonely and our mental health suffers. And even if we think about depression, for example, if we don't have pleasure in our life or social connection or things that bring us joy, mm -hmm. our mood is more inclined to feel low. And, you know, you don't, at that point, you're not having other things that are failing or ailing. You're just lonely. And that can have a profound impact on the way we show up in the world. So it doesn't surprise me that as we age, we need more of it. And we need to think about who those supports are. And, you know, it strikes me, I was uh, just hit mute and I was roaming around my office so I could find the number as uh, Dr. Erickson was speaking here. And 
there's just one statistic that says people who stay married live four years longer than people who don't. And this is from the book, Seven Principles, Making a Marriage Work by John Gottman. And what struck me with that is I don't know how he came up with that number, but I'm just kind of thinking, extrapolating on what you just said. And I'm thinking about if you are married right away, you have a little bit of social capital. You have someone there for companionship to take care of you, even if it's saying like, hey, get me another soda from the fridge or rub my feet or you're holding hands and snuggling like you did when you were 20. Mm -hmm. Like whatever it is, you have someone there that provides you that companionship and mm -hmm. that, that support system. So it's not surprising to me. And I think it also makes a lot of sense to be thinking about if you don't have a partner, like who's my, who, who are my people that I'm gonna spend a lot of time with? And I know um, as I think back to my little, my grandma's in the old folks home and um, you know, the one of them built this, this social culture. Like she was a little social butterfly. Like I said, moved herself in there, got herself a little boyfriend and had a, had a friend group and the other one didn't. And, and they're, you know, they had very different life courses as they went through that experience as we're kind of talking about it now. I'm like, Oh yeah, different mm -hmm. social experiences make sense here. So who, who is your social capital? That loneliness is a big factor. So any ideas, like if people are like, gosh, I'm already lonely. What, what can they, what can they start thinking about as they think about increasing their social capital in their lives starting today as they move forward in their life? Yes. Well, I think the big thing is that it's not necessarily about quantity, right? So you don't need a vast network of 50 people, right? In your life and, you know, at all times, we're really focusing on quality, right? And maybe it is one or two people in your life who you feel like you can go to if you're having a bad day, right? Or if you need someone to drive you to the doctor, right? So we're really just talking about quality, not quantity. And so don't put a whole bunch of pressure on yourself to be a social butterfly and to make a ton of friends. Um, so look more for quality um, and know that different friendships can serve different needs, right? So they don't all have to be super close, intimate, you know, uh, emotionally involved relationships, right? Like you can't have the friends that, yeah, you go for a hike together, right? Or the friend who uh, is your emergency contact, right? Um, if something goes wrong. So they don't all have to look the same. All these friendships can, can fulfill different needs and that's okay. Yeah. I love that. And I like to think of friends as like different hats, go <laughs> different outfits sometimes. Cause uh, I don't know, personally, I can struggle in moments and some of my clients struggle with that friend did that with that person, or I really like this person, but they don't like to do this thing with me. And it's like, yes, of course that is true. And I have many hats, you know, if I have a green hat, it's not going to go with every outfit. It's not going to go with my purple outfit or my pink outfit or my white outfit. Well, I'm actually the green hat probably go with my white outfit. That might look pretty cool. And so I need to have a lot of different hats to match all my outfits. And when I understood that about friendships, that I need them to match different parts of my life, I stopped feeling so hurt in circumstances where someone didn't want to do something in some area or they weren't like the perfect friend. They didn't match all of the domains of life that I wanted. And when I started having a few select friends in my life that matched the different occasions and seasons and activities, um, and it, it felt a lot better. And like you said, not... Um, not quantity, just quality, a few. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of like a textbook in undergrad. So this is like pulled from a long time ago memory all of a sudden here. So I might have the stat wrong, um, but I'm pretty sure uh, I'm pulling it for women, not men. Men is not popping up in my brain, but I'm pulling it for women. It said at any given time in a woman's life, they have two to four close friends. Mm -hmm. Have you heard a stat like that? Do you, yeah, do you know if I've I'm heard pulling that this well. accurately? 
Yes. Yeah. No, that, that rings a bell as well. It's like we, we can usually only keep a finite amount of people in our orbit regularly at a given time. Anyways, there's only yeah. so many hours in the day, but that two to four number is familiar to me too. And I think like, it makes sense because if you're going to stay, you know, in close contact with someone, they're taking you to appointments or like you're sharing routinely with them. You can't have that with everyone. And mm-hmm. I'm pulling now, as I'm talking about a little bit more for men, that it's a bit different. They have a few more friends and they do more activities uh, together rather than having a conversations where they just sit down and talk. I don't know the numbers for the men. Cause like yeah. I said, the yeah. stat is now being pulled from my far memory of the back of yeah. my brain, which tells me I should go and do some, some research here to well, brush up I mean, on those numbers. Allow me to corroborate. And, and my sense of male and female friendships in terms of kind of different functions that they play is the same too, right? Women tend to have, you know, friendships that revolve around disclosure, right? And sharing of things and offering of support versus men tend to gravitate more towards sharing of activities and experiences. Um, and may not lean as much into, you know, deep disclosure as women do. Yeah generally. Okay. Well, let's talk about, we've talked about loneliness as a huge factor and physical health. Um, what about just how does our mental health change over the lifespan? What kind of things can we expect? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, first with this question, I mean, it's important to, to understand how we assess changes in mental health over the lifespan. Like how do we know, uh, what the changes are and, Um, you know, I'll nerd out a little bit for a moment, but uh, one important thing to note is that, uh, you know, we rely a a lot on, um, you know, population surveys. So surveys of thousands of people, um, and these are called epidemiological surveys, right? Where we would sample thousands of people and sometimes, you know, different age groups at one point in time, so we can compare them. Or sometimes we look at a cohort of people and follow them for five 10, sometimes 15 or 20 years, right? So we can get different snapshots of um, how mental health differs um, across time or comparing different subsections of age groups. Um, And we ask them a ton of questions as far as their symptoms, but also, you know, different lifestyle factors like income, education, marital status, physical health. So we're able to get a good picture of of what's happening and, and some factors that might be related to that. Um, So with those epidemiological surveys, what we've tended to find is that, um, I mean, the picture of mental health in late life is actually pretty good. Like we find that the prevalence of most major mental disorders tends to decrease as people get older. And this is often sort of called the the paradox of aging. Um, I mean, our stereotypes of aging is that like people get sadder or more depressed because they're physically limited and their friends are dying off. But that's actually not supported in the research that we see. Most Mm. of the research really tends to suggest that the prevalence of these disorders tends to go down. The functional impact of these disorders tends to reduce as well. Um, So all of that actually paints a bit more of an optimistic picture of, you know, aging in in late life from a mental health perspective. Now, obviously, there are always the exceptions, right? There are people who will deal with chronic, you know, mental health difficulties as they get older um, or will have, say, a new onset um, mental disorder in late life. But generally speaking, you know, the trends are pretty Good. Um, and now the exception, I guess, too, is um, neurocognitive disorders. So obviously, mm. um, you know, the prevalence and incidence of, of dementia, for example, will increase, you know, the older that you get. Now, the vast majority of people, you know, uh, older adults won't be diagnosed with dementia. 
but a good chunk of them will experience some age-related cognitive decline, right? So some reductions in your short-term memory or your attention or your speed of processing, that's all pretty normal. Mm. I'm really curious. I was just bombarded with like a popular myth that you kind of touched on, but it's like that people get grouchy in old age and they're, yeah, they're like grouchier. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, it's an ageist stereotype. There's tons of them, right? And we might not always be aware of them, but one of them is, yeah, that older adults are grumpy, they're irritable, they're grouchy. um, And that's just not the case. Uh, One of the interesting things that does happen emotionally for people in sort of the later years of their life is that they actually have a a bias towards positive information more so than negative information, right? And and for most of us earlier on in life, the opposite is true. So Mm. we pay more attention to negative information. We perseverate on it a little bit more. We think more about it. We might experience more negative emotion relative to positive emotion, but the opposite is true late in life. So older adults tend to experience positive emotions more often than negative emotions and tend to remember and have a bias for positive information more so than negative information. Wow, that's super interesting. Do you have any ideas or hypotheses as to what Um, factors lead to that shift? I mean, there's a lot of speculation about why. I mean, some people cite maybe there's cognitive changes in the brain that are contributing to that. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the the explanations that I'm quite a fan of um, has to do with changes in time perspective as we grow older. Right. So for older adults, they start to have the sense that time is running out. Mm. Right. So it's not the same like for you and me where we'd say time. I've got lots of time. The future is ahead of me. I've got a plan for the future. I'm excited for the future. Older adults are very much like, you know, time is running out. So I've only got the present. And so they're very much about optimizing their experiences in the present moment. Right. And if you are a bit more present focused, generally people are happier if they're more present focused. True. Right. So so that shift in time perspective might contribute to being a little bit happier and, and not as likely to cling to the negatives, you know, if you're really yeah. trying to optimize your experience right now. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious about one of the other things that you brought up. Um, you've talked about how, you know, there's a, a perspective that mental health actually gets worse and, you know, you, you have loss of people around you, et cetera. And you said, there's always going to be exceptions. And one of the things I find is, many people uh, tend to look at the exceptions and like hone in on the exceptions rather than looking at the entire balance picture. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I think my view is like a, a normal reaction after a loss of friends would be just a normal grieving period, which is different than a depressive uh, episode or a depression, the depressive disorder. And I'm curious if, if people are like, no, my, like all I see is the exception, what kind of Mm. thoughts or challenges would you give them to help them kind of evaluate the balanced picture of, of aging people's? Uh, it's, you know, it's so funny. I had this, this conversation actually with a client the other day and my recommendation was to go watch Grace and Frankie on Netflix. Oh, okay. 
like start to consume some media and there is more of it these days that actually presents a more balanced view of aging that's not the narrative is not oh this is sad and there's all these losses and I'm so incapable and I'm lonely and all that kind of stuff the narrative is like this is a new chapter of my life and Hmm. I feel freer I have more flexibility I can still have new experiences right I, I know myself intimately like look at some of the narratives out there in media about what aging actually can be. And it's not all doom and gloom. Um, it can actually be just a whole new, fun, interesting chapter of your life. I love that perspective. And also, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned media. And someone said to me the other day, like, media is based on real life. And so if you want to learn things about life, go check it out. And like, obviously, there's stereotypes and myths in media, but it can provide us a very interesting education about different ways, walks, opportunities to think about life differently. So I like that. And I think just for anybody that's kind of feeling a bit right now, like, no, the opposite is true. I just, I just encourage you like, yes, that is one way, but just notice the part of the story that you're looking at and to see if you can gather some other data points or data sets uh, to see like, is there another perspective as well? Yeah. Um, so you talked about like physical health, uh, and you said like, um, like taking care of your body, obesity, things like that. But in terms of cognitive health, is there anything mm-hmm. evidence-based that we can do that actually supports uh, keeping a healthier mind? Yes. Yeah. No, I'm glad you asked that question. So, uh, I mean, so first, like in this domain, usually the saying is whatever is heart healthy is head healthy. Ooh. Right. So whatever you can do to keep your heart and your cardiovascular health um, good, that's going to do you a lot of favors cognitively. Right. So regular physical exercise, eating a well-balanced diet, you know, having regular physical um, examinations with your with your GP um, and and all the other things that tend to be you know, good for your heart. So, I mean, that's one really good place to start. Um, the second piece that's important, like it, it comes back a bit to socialization again, right? So if you have more social stimulation, that's definitely going to help you on the cognitive front to stay sharp and to stay engaged. Um, but related to that, like cognitive stimulation and engagement, more generally speaking, we know is, is really helpful and gives you lots of what we call cognitive reserve, right? As you get older, right? So even if you do start to have some of the, the neurological markers of say like a dementia, um, you might have enough cognitive reserve to prevent you from showing or exhibiting any symptoms, Right. Mm. So cognitive stimulation. So whether that is reading, journaling, um, you know, having a stimulating conversation with somebody else, um, engaging in creative pursuits, um, uh, doing cooking at home, mental math, like things like that, that are going to keep you sharp and keep you engaged um, are all really good things uh, from a cognitive aging perspective. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is just like use those faculties. And I'm kind of thinking about like, even like muscle strength, if you don't use it, you Mm -hmm. lose it. And Mm -hmm. I'm I'm kind Mm -hmm. of, I'm guessing here, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, My imagination is telling me that as we age, maybe we don't have um, maybe some of them like mind muscle memory that we do when we're younger. And so it's even Mm -hmm. more important to stay on top of honing those skills and using it so that we don't lose it. Is that accurate? Yeah, the use it or lose it, you know, phrase um, definitely is relevant here. The other thing that people maybe overlook um, is making sure you get regular hearing. Um, So getting regular hearing examinations, 
right? Because if you're not hearing properly, you're not really having access to a certain kind of cognitive stimulation, right? And people who aren't getting their hearing checked and have reductions in hearing quality, right? Um, there is some evidence to suggest that they experience some cognitive decline, right? Mm. So, so something like that is important to consider. Yeah. And I've like seen that personally and professionally that it's maybe starting to go, um, have you ever experienced anyone that's in, uh, finding that a barrier that they don't want to get their hearing checked? Uh, I mean, my dad was one of those people for a while. <laughs> okay, he, okay. he was definitely resistant at first and in yeah. a little bit of denial about how bad the problem was, despite everybody okay. getting very upset with him about that. Okay. But, uh, but he's come around. He's come around eventually. He's now got like the Mercedes Benz of hearing aids. So he's, Wonderful. he's doing well. <laughs> and so if someone maybe is listening to this and they're like, I do not want to get my hearing checked, or maybe they are in a position where they are the child of someone who is, knows their parent needs to get their hearing checked, any suggestions of like, you know, things to think about, about why it's important to actually do this, even if you don't want to. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, think a little bit about what you want you know, for yourself as you age? Like, do you want full access to the things that give life color and, and excitement? What do you want for your life? And also, uh, so hearing aids aren't the same today like they were 30 years ago, right? So they're compact, they're small, they're high quality, they're, they're Bluetooth enabled now, right? So don't think of it as like, you know, your grandfather's hearing aid in the 70s, right? They're more advanced now, they're more discreet now. So it doesn't have to be as big of a deal as you maybe think it is. Mm, well, that's, that's actually a really good point. Cause I think even if I think about hearing aids, I imagine this like honking thing, but I, that was the last hearing aid I saw was many, 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 many years ago. So hearing that it's small, it's compact, it's Bluetooth. Yes. I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound so bad. Right. Okay. So if maybe if for those of you that haven't figured it out yet, her, her fire alarm is going off and she is just adapting. So maybe we'll get another question out of her. Maybe, maybe yeah, we don't, we'll see. Maybe, maybe you feel like we've answered this. Maybe we haven't, but mm -hmm. is there anything unique about late adulthood from a psychological, emotional, or social perspective that we should still be aware of that we haven't yet covered? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, there's, there's always unique things happening in late life. Um, so, uh, socially, so people's social circles can change like either by circumstance, right? Like retiring, becoming a grandparent, um, let's say physical limitations. So that can all sort of impose changes in people's social lives. But the other interesting thing that happens is actually more of a, a selective social pruning that can happen in late life. So if you remember me before talking about older adults being more present focused, less concerned about the future, more concerned about optimizing their life in the here and now. That can also mean that they make different choices for who they hang out with socially. They're hmm. maybe more inclined to hang out with people that they know and love, who they know are going to provide them with a sense of feel good, right? And fun as opposed to going out and meeting a whole bunch of new people. Hmm. Right. So there is some of that more intentional kind of social pruning and being more socially selective as you get older um, because of this, you know, more present focus and desire to 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 be well in the here and now. So that's something. 
Um, psychologically, we've spoken a little bit about the change in time perspective that can happen. But the other interesting thing, so with older adults, um, some of the developmental tasks that came up early in life are no longer really a thing, right? You're not working on building your career. You're not working on launching your family, right? You're not looking for a spouse or partner, unless maybe it's your grandma, Amber, Um, right? So a lot of those developmental tasks are done. So Um, One of the major developmental tasks for older adults is more about the reflection of, did I live a meaningful life? So it's a Mm. lot of review and reflection about what have I done with my life? What have I contributed to the world? um, Consolidating all the wisdom you maybe have acquired, right? So it's much more kind of reflective. Um, It's less so about doing more and it's much more about reviewing and reflecting what you have done and feeling good about the life that you have lived, right? And what that means for the rest of us is that older adults have a ton of wisdom, right? And that is a stereotype that is true, right? Um, For however many decades of life they've lived and experiences that they've had, they have a lot of wisdom to share with all of us. Yeah, so true. And I'm just kind of thinking about that older lifetime and getting to that point where you're kind of looking back and thinking about, did I live a meaningful life? And I'm just thinking about, you know, how can we set ourselves up for that today and and set that foundation as well so that we can look back and go, wow, this was meaningful. And some of the, the work by the Gottmans suggest that when we're with our partners, like talk about, you know, what is the legacy we want to live, leave behind? What is the meaning of our relationship? What is the meaning of our life? And to have these conversations with our spouse um, or our friends so that like, where are we headed? And to talk about, you know, what are your goals 10 years from now, six months from now, but also like 50 years from now, where do you want to be? Mm-hmm. If you could write out a mission statement for your life, what would that be? If you could leave behind a legacy, what would that look like? you know, this one, someone, a client said to me yesterday, this is really morbid and didn't want to answer it. Whereas his partner was like, I want to answer it. And it was like, when you pass, what, what do you want your headstone to say? Yeah. What do you want your obituary to read? I've done that with clients as well. Bit morbid, but yeah, it just gets you thinking about what values are most central to you and how you want to be remembered. Yeah. And I think it's not too late. It's never too late or too soon to be thinking like, how is the way I want to show up in this world? So when I get to that place, I can say, yeah, it was meaningful. And not everything we do is meaningful, but some of it will be. And um, I think as a team, as part of a relationship and with our friends and that we can, we can think about how can we intentionally grow together and co-create and shape a life that is fulfilling and values-based um, with just you know some simple reflection and talking about it and working towards those goals. Um, so I'm just kind of thinking, yeah, like I said, about some of the questions um, mm-hmm. for couples to think about what is the meaning they're making of, of their lives and that could potentially mm-hmm. possibly benefit them as they continue mm-hmm. to move throughout their lifespan. And I'm even thinking like to refresh those questions as you start talking, if you talk about them in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, because our dreams, our meanings, our values, they shift. And how do we come back to that and, and reevaluate that as, as relationships with our friends or our partners and ourselves so that we can continue to move forward in a way that still feels aligned and good to us. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about a lot of things, aging and, and just skim the surface in other ways. Um, And the fire alarm cut us off too. (laughs) Darn. Damn the fire alarm. But you know, we make do. I guess it knew that the conversation was on fire. So 
it was like, I got to put it out. This is yes. 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 Oh, goodness, goodness. So if people are listening to this and they're like, wow, I haven't really thought about, you know, lifespan perspective of my mental health. What, you know, I'm going to ask you for individual, what could they start to do today to set, to lay that foundation? And if they have a family member that they just all of a sudden were like, wow, they are aging. I didn't realize it until right now. What steps, actions, thoughts, anything yeah. could they do that would just help to enhance their knowledge or support a family member? So what could they do for themselves? What could they do for someone they love in their life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think for yourself, um, I think it's helpful to reduce your fear of aging or reduce any ageist assumptions that you might have, right? Because those are the very things that might keep us up at night being like, oh my God, I don't want to be old and alone and lonely and struggling physically. Oh God, it's going to be terrible, right? So you really want to catch yourself in some of those assumptions about later life that just feed into fear of it and instead give yourself permission to fantasize about it, right? Mm. Um, Do you want kind of the grace and frankness? version of growing older like with your best friend on a nice in a nice beach house right or or what like give yourself permission to really think about what does a really lovely version of late life look for me and what do I want right Mm. and what are the steps if any that I can take now that are going to help set me up for that long term which might be having an RRSP, right? Or it also yeah. might be making sure you're regularly seeing your bestie, right? And and talking about some of this stuff too, right? Your, your maybe shared vision for growing old. Um, so it's switching from fear to maybe fantasy and excitement, right? About those, those later years in your life. Now, in terms of for helping others who are aging, um, I think, again, maybe consistent with checking your own assumptions, I think it's helpful to try to start a conversation with your aging loved one to really understand their perspective, Mm. right, of aging, what it means to them, um, what they maybe like about it, what's going well, what wisdom have they acquired, and then maybe how are things maybe not what they'd like to be. Right. And Mm -hmm. and what, what assistance, if any, they would like with that. Right. So you're Mm. not coming in assuming that someone's depressed because they're growing older and they have limited mobility, but you're coming in saying, help me understand what this is like for you. I'm Mm -hmm. curious to know, and I'm eager to, to learn from you and acquire some of your wisdom. Tell me what you've learned. Right. So, So interesting. Yeah. I mean, get curious, um, open up a conversation, ask open-ended questions, table any agenda that you have for, um, you know, trying to change them or getting them to do specific things, but try to come in first with the desire to understand um, and learn for yourself. Yeah. And I even think I just had to check an assumption of my own because I I was thinking of like my uh, older age, I realized I was thinking of my um, ailing health uh, grandmother which is very different than my parents who were like living it up, retired, having a great time and, yes. you know, be very different conversations with any. And I was like, wow, I've got to check my own assumptions here because if I'm approaching conversation, like at this point, I haven't asked my parents, but I'm reasonably sure they'd be like, we need nothing. And yeah. so also too, I think you said that check your assumptions, check in with yourself. And I think you talked about switching from fear to fantasy mm-hmm. um, for people older age, but I think also maybe for people of younger age as well, like, you know, we don't want to get 
overly assume that there's nothing wrong, but also it doesn't mm-hmm. need to come from a place of fear. It, it yes. can just come from a place of neutrality that this is a normal part of life. And yeah. as you've talked about today, that the normal part of life doesn't mean bad. In many cases, it can mean good and pleasures just in different ways that we've experienced to date. And we haven't personally gone through those experiences. Mm-hmm. 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 Oh. That was so insightful and helpful and wonderful. And I know I have to let you go, but is there any final thoughts you want to leave everyone with today? Um, I mean, I think generally speaking, there's lots to look forward to, right? So let's kind of ban anti-aging from our language and let's be pro-aging, right? And, And really start to think of it as a privilege. And ultimately what aging represents is successful adaptation, Right. right. If you get older, right, that's a sign you've been a successful adapter to tons of different things in your life. And that should really be celebrated. I do feel like celebrating your right right now. You are right. Oh my goodness. I never thought about it like that. Well, thank you again. I feel like I could ask you so many more questions, but I know you've got to run. Thank you so much for being on the show today, um, giving us so much to think about in our personal lives for people around us, society in general, um, and just also to so much more research that can be done and that, that so many places we don't know, this just feels like a huge gap um, in the research and in the understanding. And thank you for doing the work you do to start to begin to, to move the needle and bridge that gap. So a pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much, Amber. It's been great to be here. Thank you for tuning in to Relationship Psych, the podcast put on by Ember Relationship Psychology. If you're looking for more free relationship help or advice that comes straight from the couple's therapy room, check out the free resources and the blog at www.emberrelationshippsychology.com.